What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour on The Exchange. Another big data miss. The U.S. was supposed to be getting back to normal by now, but the spread of Delta has put a huge dent in that story. U.S. consumer confidence sinking sharply as a result. We'll recap the data and tell you how to position ahead of Friday's crucial job report. Plus, the supply chain was already broken, and then Hurricane Ida hit. How do we get stuff moving again, especially with a shortage of truck drivers? We'll speak to one company on the front lines. And a very meta rapid fire. Video games, app stores, and Zoom calls, we've got it all. But we begin with the markets, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. I can't wait to see just how meta that rapid fire can be. But the meta part of the markets right now are that we are... Okay, well, just about five seconds ago, we were green across the board. It's been a marginally negative day, generally speaking, as the markets pull back from the record highs that we saw in yesterday's session. Remember, records for the Nasdaq Composite and the S&P 500. So, yes, a pullback today, but not really quite so much given the context of record highs. You can see the Nasdaq outperforming today just about flat again for all three major indices here. One theme, though, that's developed over the course of the past few weeks is the reemergence of large cap technology, technology, mega cap technology and communication services, those growth oriented companies. These two ETFs track the growth part of the market. That's the white line and the value part of the market, large cap wise. That's the orange line. The value you can see there has been outperforming markedly ever since kind of like the late winter of this year. Massive gaps here. And all of a sudden, in just the last couple of months, those gaps have narrowed. And now growth stocks are outperforming value on the large cap basis. So maybe that's the new trend for the time being. We'll see if that sticks. And then from a growth perspective, semiconductors, we know that they've been the talk of the town, especially with those supply chain issues that Kelly just mentioned. Well, NXP Semiconductors is one of those chip stocks that hit record highs just in the last couple of days. Now, as a result, it's the worst performing stock in the entire S&P 500 today, Kelly, because three notable sellers are in the market or have been in the last couple of days. The company's CEO, Mm. CFO, both sold shares over the last few days. And we just found out in yesterday's session that Kathy Wood's ARC funds also lightened up on some of its position in NXP. So again, a stock near record highs, some profit taking happening right now, especially with insiders. That's what's got the stock at least partly to blame for the down day today. Back over to you. Great point. And we're going to pick up on that growth value trade in just a moment, Dom, as well. Thank you, sir. In the meantime, though, this morning's consumer confidence read for July is just the latest in a slew of disappointing economic data. Let's recap. The first big miss. Remember, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index out a couple of Fridays ago. Big disappointment. The weakest final number since February. Then retail sales for the month of July. They disappointed big time two weeks ago. After that, regional manufacturing rates in Chicago, Philly, and New York all missed Chicago weekend today. And also now today, consumer confidence tanked as well, coming in below estimates thanks to concerns about the Delta variant and about inflation. Employment and income expectations pulled back a bit. 
And get this, spending intentions from June are at the lowest level since the early 1980s. Joining me to discuss now what all of this means, Gregory Dacco is chief U.S. economist at Oxford Economics. Greg, welcome to you. I think there's some confusion as to whether these numbers represent simply a slowing from a very hot trend or the start of a more precipitous downturn. Well, I think what we're seeing is a reflection of the, the Delta variant. So there are concerns about uh, the rapid spread of the Delta variants, and we are seeing that across a number of states, the health situation is worsening. We've always said that a, a strong and healthy situation on the health front is key to supporting a robust economic recovery. So what we're seeing is, I think, a, a temporary cooling of the economy that is reflective uh, of those trends. And we saw it in the latest consumer confidence data where consumers are a little bit more on edge because of the worsening situation. But I would note that there's still a hint of optimism in that consumers are still looking towards vacations in the next yes. six months. So that reflects the fact that they're not necessarily completely going into reverse and pulling back on all spending. There's still some optimism out there in terms of the outlook. Yeah, I guess there's so many differences now versus when these numbers first started declining last year. The stock market was tanking back then. We had no idea what was going to solve this. We have the vaccine now. The market's holding up. It's just turned into a growth trade in the meantime. So where are we in terms of GDP? This has to make Friday's jobs report a pretty high stakes number. I think the jobs report is very important because it'll show us how resilient the labor market recovery is or isn't. It'll also be a key guide for the Fed because we know that the Fed believes the inflation uh, objective has been largely met. It's expecting the inflation uh, outlook to cool over the next few months, but it's still expecting to see some further gains on the employment front to reach that threshold of maximum employment, which will take time. But the September jobs report will be a good indication of how strong and how resilient the labor market is to this new Delta wave. I would also note that there's also a mix of emotions and reason in the current environment. There are some worries about the health situation, but there's also virus fatigue. And that's more reasonable at this stage of the recovery where people are looking to resume a sense of normalcy, but they aren't there yet. So that is key to watch as to how people react emotionally to this virus fatigue over the next few months. Yeah, or dread. <laughs> to me, it's like a, the virus existential dread. I just want to ask you about inflation and what your latest uh, readings on this are, because again, we're seeing these numbers all over the confidence and sentiment data. There's a very high expectation of inflation. We know in real terms, spending looks even worse. Incomes look a little worse than even the nominal numbers are showing. Um, and yet the Fed is sort of looking at the data and saying still a lot of this should pass as we get into next year. Is that going to be the case now that Delta is prolonging the supply chain effects? I think we will continue to see inflation, uh, core inflation in particular, core PC inflation, which is a key gauge for the Fed, trend around 3 uh, percent up until the early part of 2022. Now, that is somewhat sticky. But we are going to see other inflation gauges start to decline fairly rapidly. We think we're past peak inflation as well as peak growth. So the two will go line in, uh, hand in hand in a sense over the coming months. There is going to be some cooling of inflation. But as you noted correctly, supply chain disruptions are likely to linger for some time. And they will put some upward pressure on prices going out into 2022. So we are going to be in this uncomfortable environment where inflation is gradually cooling and demand is also gradually cooling. And that bodes a lot of question as to the strength of the outlook. We still see the economy growing about 6% this year and about 4.5% next year. So it's still a fairly positive outlook, but is one that has a lot of question marks around it, 
given the recent surge of the Delta variant. Absolutely. And there's a 10-year back at 130. Greg, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Greg Daco. Now, it's the last day of August and a sign that summer is winding down. In contrast to the start of the year when financials and energy outperformed, as you just heard Dom talking about a moment ago, this summer tech dominated the markets. The tech sector is up 15% over the past three months, followed by communication services and real estate. So what's next? My next guest has some other stocks that he says now deserve a tech multiple. Maybe that's where we can find some new leadership. But let's bring in Mark Avalone. He's president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. Mark, before we get into the picks, do you want to just sort of play off the points we were just making? Is the growth outperformance obviously tied to this loss of momentum, this decline in interest rates? Well, I think what one thing the growth trade has going for it is it's going to work if the Delta variant continues or we get another another variant of this horrible virus. And the growth trade is going to work if the economy expands. It's almost become like a bulletproof utility. And the the innovations that these large tech companies are bringing us, they're all very different. They're all diversified. Their lines of business are different. And they're all in the right places of the growing economy. I think that has a lot to do with how it's done well here as the value and cyclical trades have declined just a little bit. So it sounds like you're not saying get out of technology. You're just saying here's a few other names that could, you know, should see similar kinds of gains or maybe similar valuations. What are they? Well, you're right. There's no way we would get out of technology right now. It's almost impossible to be invested and not be in technology. First of all, it's just too prevalent throughout. But I think what we want to do as investors is broadly diversify and look for sectors that may be beaten down just a little bit, but have strong underpinning, strong franchises, good companies that are getting hit by this Delta variant in the travel space. Marriott right here in Bethesda, where we're located, is a great company. They've really taken advantage of of new innovation, bringing down their cost structure, extremely well managed. The Starwood merger has gone very well. If you go in certain markets, they have pricing power. You know, it's the sort of merger that today I'm not sure would go through under the Biden administration because it's really reaped benefits for shareholders. Some other names in the tech space, we like Amazon because it just hasn't participated this year. And we think its cloud emphasis is is very undervalued. And I think even if the regulatory pressures come down hard on companies like Amazon, we're not afraid of what a breakup would mean for them in terms of enterprise value and stock price. And I see that you also like Netflix, another name that's gone nowhere for the past new year. You're excited, like many, about this new content as possibly a catalyst for the stock. Also, want to ask you about GM. You know, it's had these problems with the Bolt recall, which you say could be a good entry point. But why do you think it will uh, actually re-rate and trade more, you know, in line with maybe more of a tech company? Well, well, that's a fair question, and it's a tough call, no doubt. But I think we have to look past these these horrible uh, you know blips that we have with with recalls and, and damaging. I mean, um, Volkswagen had one a few years ago, and they've roared back. Well-managed companies, well-positioned companies will come come through this. If you take a longer-term perspective, I think the Biden administration is committed to EVs. We're going to see a lot of money in infrastructure to support such efforts. You know, G- GM is almost in bear market territory from its peak. So we think for longer-term investors looking to capitalize on some bad news, they can get into a longer-term uptrend for a company that's also been improving its internal operations over the past few years. And it doesn't really resemble the legacy GM of old that we saw a decade ago. I want to ask you a final question. For those who are sort of scratching their heads about inflation and interest rates, you're certainly in the camp that sees maybe demographics, possibly even deflation as continuing to be the bigger risks here. 
Explain what that looks like 12 months from now, if we're still seeing 3% reads on the CPI or higher. Well, I'm not sure we're going to see that only because inflation is measured year over year. I hear a lot about, well, these wage gains, they're not going away. That's right. They're not going away, but they're going to be in the 2021 baseline data. That's one. We think innovation will continue. Productivity continues. And we think these aging demographics in Europe, Japan, and to some extent here are major structural headwinds. Also, Europe and Japan have been limping along for, for since 2008, and they're doing nothing to change their troubled, the troubled infrastructure or the way they regulate their economies. So it is a global economy, and we don't see the global economy heating up as central banks try to either taper or even slightly tighten on the monetary side. All right, Mark, thank you for your perspectives today. Good to hear from you. We appreciate it. Mark Avalone from be. Potomac. I want to take a quick look at shares of Wells Fargo, which just moved to session lows. There are reports out that the bank risks regulatory action over the pace of restitution and reforms. We've seen Wells Fargo, uh, among a number of other things lately, try to discontinue some consumer loans and that kind of thing. Shares are down 2.5%. We'll bring you more details as we get them. Coming up, as ESG has become the hot new thing, everyone is trying to be environmentally friendly, but how much impact do net zero pledges really have? Plus, college students are back in school, but in the age of COVID, many are opting out of the dorms, and that's creating a boom in student housing. We have the details and the stock to watch in that sector. Stay with us. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. As the ESG investing movement has grown, many companies and countries are pledging to become net zero in the future. But those pledges don't mean the same thing to everyone. Christina Partsinevelis is digging into the ambiguity. Now more than ever, companies and countries are talking up their green credentials, pledging to become net zero or carbon neutral. But when we dig into the details, the pledges don't always live up to their promises. Simply put, net zero is the balance between the amount of greenhouse gas produced and the amount removed from the atmosphere. To reach that balance, we need to make up for the amount of CO2 we emit by investing in carbon offsets like planting trees, building wind farms, or using carbon capture. But definitions vary across the board. There is a fear that by making a long-term commitment to net zero, but not filling in all of the detail about exactly how that's going to happen in the short term, uh, that um, companies and countries are sort of pushing off to tomorrow. But how achievable are these commitments? Carbon offsets avoid the release of additional carbon dioxide into the atmosphere by preventing deforestation or supporting renewable energy projects. But research shows less than 5% of offsets actually remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And an Oxfam report calculated the total land required for planned carbon removal and found it could be five times the size of India or the equivalent of all the farmland on the planet, which means achieving net zero emissions isn't so black or white. 
I think there are some, uh, you know, forced commitments, forced by shareholder pressure, forced by media, which are not supported by action plans, and that's got to change. I mean, unless we have clearly actionable, measurable targets with with people spelling it out in every last detail, uh, we're just not going to get there. A pledge that doesn't include meaningful reductions could increase the risk that catastrophic climate change will become unavoidable. And critics argue it's not as hard to make a pledge towards net zero if companies can set parameters for it. Kelly? One thing, Christina, we know from uh, the corporate world is they just want to know, everyone wants to do the same thing at the same time, right? It's like return to work. They're all watching each other to see who's doing what. In the case of net zero, who is setting the standards? Should corporate America be leading? Should the countries be leading? Is this kind of a UN, you know, global organization type uh, initiative? Great, great question, because it was one of the answers that uh, one of my guests had, and they talked about it must be government first. The government needs to instill standards, which is why you have here in the United States, the SEC is looking to even ESG. In Europe, they're very advanced with that. But, of course, everyone's rushing. And I even have one statistic about 124 nations out of 202 nations surveyed right now have made pledges towards either carbon neutral or net zero, especially ahead of the climate uh, summit in Glasgow in November. But a lot of it is just making this pledge. And there seems to be a lot of details that are lacking on how they're going to achieve this pledge, especially in the short term. Right. And in the meantime, the price of carbon hitting new highs in Europe and very interesting to watch uh, its performance under as those standards continue to evolve. Christina, thank you. We appreciate it. Christina, parts and Epilis. Sticking with ESG, let's look at some of the top ETFs and their performance this year, starting with ESGV. It's up 20 percent. Its top holdings include Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet and Amazon. ICLN, the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF, down 17 percent. Its top holdings, Vestas Wind Systems, Enphase Energy, Nextera Energy and Solar Edge and the Vanguard Social Index Fund, ticker VFTAX. It's also up 21% this year. Very similar story to ESGV. And also to the NASDAQ and S&P 500, its top holdings are Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook to round things out. Coming up, Virgin Galactic is taking off. Support.com needs some help. And is the run over for Zoom? Those stories and more coming up on The Exchange. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The Nasdaq has now joined the other major averages in negative territory. This just kind of kicked off at the top of the hour, as Dom told you. The Nasdaq uh, is down six points, the S&P down four, the Dow is down 17. But let's check on some of the individual movers this hour. Shares of Virgin Galactic getting a nice bump today after being initiated with a buy and a $33 price target at Jefferies. Virgin's around 27 on a 10% gain today. Jefferies thinks we will see 660 space flights a day by 2030, up from the current capacity of about 36. Walgreens Boots Alliance is leading the Dow today. The company announcing it's raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And this stock is actually 
actually one of the best Dow performers this year. It's up 27% and it's up 4% today. And two retail names are dropping. Designer brands, formerly DSW, down almost 10% despite an all-around earnings beat. Chico's also down 15% and that's only a $5 stock despite also having a huge earnings beat. That said, both stocks have soared this year. Designer brands up 84%. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. As flights from Kabul continue to bring refugees to Europe, the French government says that there are still a few dozen French nationals left in Afghanistan, including some who do want to be evacuated. French officials say that they will do the maximum to help them get out. And on the news, how will the Taliban govern, plus former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta, on the U.S. withdrawal. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. In Virginia, a teacher who refuses to refer to transgender students by their preferred pronouns is going back to the classroom. The state Supreme Court has upheld the lower court's ruling that ordered his reinstatement. Mike Richards, no longer the executive producer of Jeopardy! Sony making the announcement just days after he lost the job as host of that show over past misogynistic comments. Richards is also out as executive producer of Wheel of Fortune. And a football shocker. Multiple reports now saying that the New England Patriots have released starting quarterback Cam Newton. That job is reportedly going to 22-year-old rookie Mac Jones. Cam Newton posting on his Twitter, Kelly, uh, saying essentially, don't feel sorry for me. You know, just thanking his fans for, his, for their support, but saying, you know, don't, don't feel bad for him. That's rough. I mean, the Brady-Belichick saga, Rahel, and then Brady goes to Tampa Bay. You think there's no way, and then he does it. I mean, I, I just love it, but... It, yeah, it was a tough position for him to come into, for sure. I know. Very high expectations. Uh, we'll see what uh, the next chapter brings. For help, thank you. Meantime, China's disappointing data and increasing crackdowns, South Korea's new payment rules, and does Zoom really have no competition? That's all coming up in Rapid Fire in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a couple more stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire, and joining me today to break down the headlines, our very own Kate Rooney, alongside Michael Yoshikami, who is the Destination Wealth Management founder and CEO, and a third interlocutor might join us momentarily, which plays into our whole discussion about Zoom. But anyhow, first up, data in from China today showing signs of a contracting economy. As the crackdown in publicly traded companies shows no signs of letting up, non-manufacturing called services PMI went below 50 for the first time in over a year. Analysts at Nomura writing that a second half growth slowdown in China could be quite notable. And China, of course, itself is going a step further with major crackdowns on its own companies, the latest being the video game industry. Michael, I have been waiting days to follow up with you on this topic. You warned us last week this still has a ways to go. What do you make of the latest data points, the video game crackdown, and where is this all going? Uh, the data points are not a surprise to me. I think there are some challenges in China. But what's happening right now, Kelly, uh, is China is essentially saying that uh, profit is secondary to policy and to philosophy. Uh, what they're essentially doing is they're really calling out uh, large, rich uh, IPO tech companies, uh, as well as IPO uh, tech holders, and basically saying, you can't have all this money anymore. You can't make your employees work 12 hours a day, six days a week. You just can't do it anymore. We're going to keep your kids away from video games. Uh, they're really going all out, and it's going to continue, I think, for this foreseeable future, Kelly. It's interesting, Kate, to look even, you know, kind of anecdotally, TikTok and every, everyone's trying to figure out exactly what's going on. And the message simply, I think most people are interpreting it to some extent as simply a power play, as 
the government not wanting these Chinese companies to get too big. And of course, the government having an eye towards sort of social cohesion, whatever you want to call it, trying to increase the birth rate to bring down the cost of living, lower the barriers to having more kids and so forth. And I guess, you know, cracking down on video games sort of fits into that. Yeah, crackdowns on video games, some of those private education companies, cryptocurrencies and some of those mining companies. You talk to VCs and they say, you know, uncertainty is a part of this. And a lot of them don't invest in China for that very reason. And if they do, they have a dedicated arm there. They're based there. It's really hard to do U.S. investments in China from the U.S. And they say, yeah, we knew about this uncertainty, but it seems to be getting more and more uncertain And that's one of the reasons some are saying, you know, we're just going to avoid it entirely. And tech was really seen as sort of a crown jewel there. You think of companies like Ant Financial and FinTech, Alibaba, those are really global superpowers. So it's interesting that they would crack down and we'll see what it means for global investors. Casey Newton joining us now. Casey, what do you make of what's going on? Well, I think it's important to remember that these changes are very ideologically driven, right? China is a socialist country, and I think it is really concerned about the growth of of some of these tech giants. At the same time, I think you're going to see uh, them continue to invest in technology. It's just going to be technology related to strategic national interests. So expect a lot more in building out their supply chain, chip fabrication plants, surveillance technology, things like that. Michael, a final word, because, you know, all along for the last several weeks and even months now, you've been saying it's not time yet. It's not time yet, as we've seen the value of a lot of Chinese stocks decline. How much longer? I mean, are you thinking a few more weeks, a few more months into 2022? I think it could very well go into 2022. Look what they are doing with uh, Zhao Wei, which is one of the most famous actresses yes. uh, in China, where they're essentially not just canceling her from future projects, They're going back and they're erasing her from the credits of previous shows. You can't even find anything online in China about this actress. She's not the only one. So I think China really is putting their foot down and saying, as was just mentioned, this is about politics. This is not about money. The government's in control and we're going to show you we're going to control regardless of what happens to these private education companies and the millions of people that will be out of work doesn't matter. What matters is state first. What did she do to, you know, create such blowback from authorities? Well, there's a couple things, but most of these um, uh, celebrities are are getting criticized for what are called yin-yang contracts, which are essentially contracts where you're paid a certain amount, which is allowed by the Chinese government, and then you have side payments. And these side payments are sort of endorsement deals. They're sort of like bonuses that are really kind of unofficial payments. Well, China's decided to take notice of this, and they're canceling people for these type of contracts. That's why you had one actress whose name escapes me right now essentially disappeared for a year and had to pay $100 million in back income taxes on money that was never declared. So China really is looking through all of the ways that people that have wealth are making money in impacting what they believe is the population, and they're going after them, um, as was just mentioned, as a socialist country. And I think it's going to continue into next year. Yeah, and we see Pinduoduo, Amazon, some of the other names bouncing, or I'm sorry, Alibaba bouncing back today. Uh, but your warning says, let's wait and see what uh, the rest of the year has to bring. All right, let's move along. China isn't the only Asian country cracking down on tech. South Korea passing a bill that prohibits Google and Apple and other companies from banning third-party payment systems outside of their app stores. Clear win for players like Spotify and Epic Games, which praise legislation today. But Google and Apple are pushing back. Google saying in a statement that, quote, Google Play provides far more than payment processing and our service fee helps keep Android free. 
Apple writing, we believe user trust in App Store purchases will decrease as a result of this legislation. Shares of both companies are mixed today. Apple down half a percent. Uh, Casey, is this a sign of what's to, what's to come around the world, you think? I, I really do. There have been signs that this dam was about to break, and Korea is the first place where it happened. Right now, both of these giants are going to have to build in the functionality to add these third-party payment processors. And once they're built for Korea, they could be implemented anywhere else around the world as long as a country passes a law requiring it. You can imagine a lot of developers like Spotify, like uh, Epic Games, lobbying for exactly that to happen. And keep in mind that there are also antitrust actions going on around the world intended to accomplish just this. So yes, I do believe this is a start of a sea change for these tech giants. Yeah, shrugging it off today. But if it spreads, we'll see if that changes as well. All right, let's move along. A new cyber meme stock has entered the chat and it's getting a lot of support from the Reddit crowd. Support.com up nearly 200% this week and nearly 1,500% this year. S3 partners saying as much as 60% of the float is sold short, which appears to have caught the attention of the Wall Street Bets crowd. Support.com's market cap was just $40 million last year. We wouldn't even mention it. Kate, it's over a billion dollars at the start of this week. It's so interesting. Some of these meme stock characterizations, it's so subjective. It's a, one of these, these names gets bid up on Reddit. I think you're completely spot on there with the short selling. It was something like 60% of uh, the float sold short. And that tends to be one of the big recipes. If they feel, if retail traders feel like they are sort of going up against hedge funds in this case, whoever tends to be betting against one of these stocks. But you wonder what this means for the future of short sellers. Is it worth it at this point to really hang yourself out there to dry with any stock? It just seems like, you know, that information for the most part is public. Retail traders can now share that more easily. There's YouTube videos. It's not just Reddit. There's people saying, okay, here's how to short the stock, cause pain to the hedge funds. And it is sort of more of a power dynamic and power struggle than anything. But this does seem to be the recent, the most recent example, at least, of a trend that we've seen, you know, going back to GameStop, it's sort of the flavor of the week. That is a fascinating point. Uh, Michael, you want to respond? Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, the short sellers really are on notice. In a way, this is almost really a, a market dynamic that really is reigning in short sellers. Um, if you think about what the main complaint from companies has been, is that short sellers have really been driving the uh, metrics for the stock prices, driving the prices up, driving the prices down. It really hasn't been based on fundamentals. So now we have another party on the other side that I suppose their um, per, their perspective is they're keeping these uh, hedge funds accountable. So I think it's going to continue. And I think it's absolutely correct that if you're short in a stock, you better have strong conviction and a lot of money because they could come, come after you very easily like they are. Uh, on support.com today. Casey, it's just strange to me, and this goes back a little bit to the China story, it seems more like a power struggle than price discovery. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, it is a power struggle. You know, the, but I think the, the biggest power struggle that we've seen this year is just these uh, sort of retail investors who are looking for a trampoline that's going to vault them into the next income bracket, who <laughs> are going to exploit anything that they can find, you know, on Reddit or on Discord that's going to get them there. And it feels like support.com is just the latest instance of what feels like a really durable phenomenon. 
especially because as they do that, the companies get mentioned on CNBC. <laughs> Investors get interested. Oh, what are they up to? I mean, yeah. it is a, an oddly, it's like the original Elon Musk, uh, how he lowers Tesla's advertising costs. He just tweets a lot. All right. Uh, finally, today and pertinent to everything we've been discussing, Zoom video is in search of support after its earnings yesterday. The company reported its first billion dollar quarter, uh, but it's down 15, 16% now on slowing growth fears. Here's what Zoom CFO Kelly Steckelberg had to say on Squawk Box when asked about growing competition from the likes of Cisco and Microsoft Teams. We haven't really seen significant changes in the competitive environment. We have customers that love Zoom due to our ease of use, our reliability, and also as we're continuing to evolve from being a meetings company to a platform that includes things not only like Zoom meetings that we're, we're using here, but also Zoom phone, Zoom rooms, and all this is happening amid a slew of companies announcing that they will push back their return to office plans, obviously maybe having to lean more on Zoom. Maybe not Google, which has Google Meet in the last few minutes. Google did just announce it will delay voluntary return to office until January. Michael, since we have to just kind of leave it here, I'll let you make the stock pick. Would you buy, hold or sell Zoom here? Uh, I'd be pretty cautious on this name. There's lots of expectations built into um, all of these stocks. Uh, the stock is down for the year, and I think that you're in a position right now uh, as an investor where you have to decide really where are we at with this reopening trade. When things do reopen, and believe it or not, one day they will reopen, even if it's next year, uh, it's going to impact these sort of names. So you got to be very careful when you're investing in names that are all sentiment-based. All right. Well, again, down 16% this year, and it has been a tough year for Zoom, which was the pandemic stock of 2020. Michael Yoshikami, Kate C. Newton, and uh, Kate Rooney, thank you all very, very much today. We appreciate it. Still ahead, shares of both casual dining and fast food restaurants are up this year as the economy reopens, but a new report shows there are still a lot of risks looming over the industry. We'll dig into that next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. A merger in the transport space has just been rejected. Let's go to Dom Chu for a market flash. Dom? A dramatic and highly publicized bidding war for a railway company, Kansas City Southern. The U.S. Surface Transportation Board, the STB, has rejected a proposal put forth by Kansas City Southern and its proposed acquirer, Canadian National, to put a voting rights structure in place to make it so that the merger would pass regulatory muster. Because of that rejection, shares of Canadian National are now surging, as you can see there, by about eight some percent. They are the ones who have won this bidding war. Now it looks like they will not be able to pay the billions of dollars needed to buy this particular company. Shareholders reacting positively there. Meanwhile, you've got Kansas City Southern shares moving the session lows, trying to bounce a bit here. And Canadian Pacific Railway, which was the Canadian company that was in a bidding war with Canadian National to try to buy Kansas City Southern, also dropping there as well. So a lot of ripple effects here around this one particular deal, Kelly. But we'll continue to monitor this for right now. That's the reason why. Canadian National is higher. They don't get to do this deal. And the other two companies possibly still have to work things out. Back over to you. Wow, Dom, thank you very much. Dom Chu with the latest there. Let's turn to a new report out today on the state of restaurants showing a recovery for the first half of the year. But the industry as a whole is still facing major headwinds. Kate Rogers is here with those details. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Well, restaurant sales have made a nice recovery so far in 2021 and are projected to reach $789 billion this year. That's up nearly 20% since 2020. 
thanks to pent-up consumer demand and the availability, of course, of vaccines. This is still well below pre-pandemic levels. But the Delta variant is threatening the recovery. Six in 10 adults said that they've changed dining habits due to Delta. 19% said that they've stopped going to restaurants altogether. And you can see the impact of rising COVID cases in the casual sector in particular. The biggest year-to-date winners are once again those that operate well in both open and more restricted settings like Chipotle, Domino's, and Papa John's as compared to those that rely on indoor seating. In fact, both Brinker International and Dave & Buster's were downgraded on that exact point yesterday. And last week, McDonald's discussed with its franchisees what data should prompt dining rooms to reclose in areas where the Delta variant is widely spreading, according to internal company materials viewed by CNBC. Starbucks and Yum! brands did not immediately comment on how indoor dining is currently being handled. Labor, of course, remains a major hurdle for operators. 75% of restaurant operators said recruiting employees was their top challenge as of June. That's the highest level ever recorded in 20 years. For context, in January, that number, Kelly, was just 8%. And also we have minimum wage is another factor that we often talk about hitting a lot of the stores, uh, some of the fast food uh, restaurants as well, those that don't pay it, that have to compete with those that do and so forth. Anything else we know, even just in the last week, come on over, Katie, since we uh, have that luxury. (laughs) Anything else you know just in the past week or so about, you know, what these what their plans are for Delta as people are hoping that maybe it's starting to peak? Can they mm-hmm. shelve these plans, or do you think there's still plenty of time for us to see them roll I out? I think while it's so uncertain, you're just going to see a very heavy reliance on technology and digital sales. Drive-through for McDonald's is about three-quarters of their sales in the wow. U.S., which is a huge number. So I don't think they're as concerned. And guess what? They know how to do it. They did it all of last year. Of course, many of these companies want indoor dining to be an option, but if for some reason it's not safe right now, they have fallback plans that they now know how to execute uh, You know, much more than they did prior to the pandemic when we didn't even know it was possible to have to operate in restrictive It's amazing. Papa John's up 50% again year to date. That really tells you something. Kate, thank you. Thank Kate you. Rogers. Still ahead, Ida has left more than a million people in Louisiana without power and with scant drinking water. We'll look at the potential economic impact as the storm lingers next. Welcome back. Hurricane Ida rescue efforts are still underway. And while that's ongoing, economic agencies like the Fed are getting information to help assess the economic impact. Steve Leisman joins us now with those details. Steve? Kelly, yeah, the Fed and other agencies first started monitoring the economic impact of Hurricane Ida days before it hit land, watching reports of offshore rigs closing down and beginning quickly to assess as best they could potential storm effects. It used to take weeks, even months, but with new high-frequency data sources, the economic fallout from natural disasters on jobs, consumer spending, and industrial production, they can now be watched in hours and focused down to the zip code, even overlaid on top of flood maps. Among the data sets agencies like the Fed Watch or those from Power Outage U.S., it shows more than a million customers at this moment in Louisiana without power. That's about half of all customers. Some may not get their power back for weeks, which would deepen the potential impact. How long these numbers persist? Well, that'll go a long way to measuring the broader effects, both locally and on the national economy. Right now, Joe Boswellis of RSM, one of the few guys to venture a number here, he estimates the combination of disruptions to the oil and gas industry, power outages, and property damage are going to reduce national GDP by 0.2% in this quarter, but that assumes things don't last too long. That would be far less, by the way, than the long-lasting impacts of Katrina. Hits to jobs from Ida will show up in the September jobs report, but can be monitored weekly with data from sources like ADP. Katrina, an exception. Depressing national payrolls for two months and many experienced economic hardships for years. The levies, this time, they look to have withstood the battering. 
at a time when COVID is being closely watched for its economic impact, especially, by the way, in places like Louisiana, understanding the storm's direct impact could play a role in setting policy and other aid efforts, Kelly. It's a great point, and for us to keep in mind as well on all of the data that's going to be vital anyhow for the next few months. Steve, thanks. Our Steve Leesman. Ida has already snarled distribution and supply chains across the South, and trucking companies are likely to play a critical role in getting supplies to the region. They've actually teamed up with FEMA in the past to do so. Joining me now is JKC Trucking co-owner and vice president Mike Kucharski. Mike, it's good to have you. Welcome. And, and what's the latest uh, that you're hearing on the ground? Kelly, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, so far, I'm hearing that, you know, a couple things have to happen after a hurricane happens. You know, they have to get accessibility. And there's first thing happens is trucks come through and uh, they clear the roads. So the rest of the people come through. Utility workers are being sent in. Secondly, to restore power. And three is where we come in, uh, FEMA and the trucking companies, delivery of goods. You know, we take the ability uh, – to receive, we have to take the product and receive, have the product received and distributed to the goods to where the people need it the most. Yeah, and I understand you guys specialize in refrigerated trucking. Explain how important that is. Correct. It, it's very important. So as soon as a uh, let's say uh, Louisiana loses power of the Walmart. Everything in the Walmart will lose refrigeration and will be automatically thrown out. So they're going to have to replenish that very quickly. So Walmart's going to obviously, you know, order more product to come in. And if those stores get up and running, we have to replenish that. But first, you know, before the refrigeration and stuff comes through, you know, right now they're sending tarps, water, etc., and, and the food's going to follow very shortly behind that. Tell me what it's like, you know, these stories are going around where, you know, I read that, you know, a typical truck driver salary is now something like $85,000, maybe higher. You know, are, are those extreme cases of what's going on in your industry or is that becoming fairly common? And what's the impact uh, in terms of you guys able to find enough uh, people to drive the trucks and, and keep these supply chains going? Yeah, so uh, the biggest issue is there's no capacity to uh, haul this product. You know, currently the U.S. is short 20 to 25 percent of, of of all truck drivers. You know, we are constantly recruiting to get truck drivers going, but you know what has happened. Uh, the prices have skyrocketed. Labor's costs skyrocketed. For example, JKC used to pay above uh, average uh, per mile, and we had to increase another five cents because the competition increased it. So we don't lose drivers. So we could hold on and keep the wheels rolling. You know, we have less trucks rolling, but uh, we're trying to keep the the supply chain going right now. And it's uh, until uh, the economy, well, until America opens up and all the workers come back, you know, that's going to be kind of a, a struggle because we need kind of all hands on deck. Our biggest issue that we're having now is when we go to these distribution centers, there's not enough labor to unload the product. Wow. And we're being held up, and that slows down the supply chain. Where did all your drivers go, and how much is your typical pay at this point? Well, how's this? Uh, let's say you and I jumped in uh, two different trucks, and we again ran from Chicago to uh, uh to Los Angeles and back, we get paid 60 cents per mile for 4,000 miles. That's, you know, it's uh, over $1,500. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a, good, it's a good pay for six days of work. Got it. And where did all the drivers go? Well, the drivers are, are scattered through, well, some of the drivers that are missing are still, you know, sheltering at home. You know, a lot of drivers, a lot of my drivers said, hey, listen, I'm going to stay back at home because I have children or I have the uh, wife that has, uh, you know, issues and, and I want to stay and, you know, protect them and be with them to help them until this COVID thing passes. So they're, they're sitting at home. Yeah, that is just so interesting. All the different effects this has had in the storm on top of it as well. Great point, too, about refrigerated trucking. Mike, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it.
Thank you so much. Mike Kacharski of JKC Trucking. Up next, take a look at this mystery chart. The name is up 50% over the past year, and it's the only REIT of its kind. We'll reveal it and check on why it's doing so well next. Welcome back, everybody. We're going into the third school year impacted by COVID. And as some colleges welcome some students back to campus, we're taking a look at the student housing sector and the one REIT that has seen massive gains. Diana Olick is here with the details. Diana? Kelly, no question, students want to be near campus, even if classes end up going online again. As many universities require vaccinations, the apartment buildings are filling up. In July, student housing pre-lease rates hit 86.7% across the core 175 universities covered by RealPage. That's higher than last year and also higher than July 2019's pre-pandemic reading. From June to July of this year, pre-leasing jumped nearly 10%. The largest monthly jump recorded this late in the season in several years. So it's very likely August leasing will cross 90%. As for rent, growth also hit its highest rate in July, up 2.1% annually. And this was led by properties more than one mile from campus. That growth is higher than last year and 2019 rates. Now there is just one publicly traded student housing REIT, American Campus Communities, and you can see its stock is up over 47% year over year. It has now surpassed its pre-pandemic high. And another survey from Township, a Los Angeles-based real estate private equity firm, found roughly 70% of students remained in off-campus housing even after students transferred to online learning this past spring. So Kelly, demand is not falling off at all. Even though these can be pretty expensive. Yeah, they're absolutely very pricey. But look, a lot of parents actually saved money last year because their students were kept at home online, so they didn't pay room and board. So they might have a little extra in the till. They also want that security of knowing that even if classes do go online, their students can still at least stay on campus and have some sort of college experience. Absolutely. And this is the only kind of major play in the space? Well, ACC is the only publicly traded REIT. There is a lot of private equity, though, going into student housing, especially as the demand goes up. Yeah. Diana, finally, we saw 18.5% gains in the Case-Shiller this morning. I, you know, how high can this go? It looks like the people who bought last year, it seemed so crazy at the time. Uh, they're sitting on some pretty nice gains so far. Yeah, if you bought last year, great, because they keep on going up. That was the third straight record jump in the S&P Case-Shiller Home Price Index. A lot of folks are saying that those prices are going to have to start to cool because we're seeing sales drop off. Yesterday, we saw the pending home sales index fall, and that's a measure of signed contracts. So prices usually lag sales, and sales are slowing. Yeah. Diana, thanks. Diana Olick, our real estate maven. That does it for The Exchange today, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.